Outsiders is made possible by grants from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund at USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, Studio to Be Seattle, and Jim and Beerta Falconer of Seattle. Washington State has one of the most robust economies in America. It's the birthplace of Microsoft and Amazon, home to the two richest people on the planet. Olympia is the capital. And in late 2018, Olympia became an extreme example of the West Coast's struggles with unsheltered homelessness. Olympia is the state capital. It's supposed to be a beautiful place. Jessica is one of hundreds of people who ended up homeless, living in tents in downtown Olympia. In episode one of Outsiders, she moved into the city's sanctioned camp, the mitigation site. It's a modern day shantytown, the city's attempt at controlling a problem that threatens to overwhelm it. Olympia is also Jessica's hometown. She, like many people, is shocked by what she sees. As homeless people, if you see the trash over here and the mounds of trash everywhere, we make it nasty around here. And I want my state capital back and I want it to be beautiful again. And I want to make everything else fall into place to where my community and my people in it can be beautiful and happy. For a lot of people who live here, it feels like homelessness transformed their city overnight. There are much larger cities with many more homeless people. But in Olympia, a town of just 50,000, it feels disproportionate. A big city problem concentrated in a small town. Everyone in Olympia is talking about it. Some are showing up at city council meetings. You sit up there behind a pretty desk when your community is falling to pieces. People are dying out here in the cold. I don't believe that our community has ever had to face this issue with such raw eyes as we are now. There is no plan. There is no plan at all. I'm Will James. This is Outsiders. And in this episode, we're investigating the mystery of what happened in Olympia. In just a few weeks, the number of tents downtown went from around 30 to more than 300, a tenfold increase. When I tell people this, even people who know a lot about homelessness, they're shocked. Just about every city on the West Coast has had some kind of reckoning with homelessness in the past few years, but few, if any, of those reckonings have been as sudden, as extreme as Olympia's. The answer to what happened here has two parts. First, years of rising pressure then an explosion. But to really understand this mystery, how weird and startling it was, you have to understand Olympia. This is the seat of government in a state that's routinely ranked among the best to live in, the best to do business, the healthiest. But Olympia is also just this pretty town by the water, a town with parades. The city Olympia is one of the most uniquely sited state capitals in the nation. Well, I describe it as one of the prettier small towns in America. Despite being the state capital, it still has a small town feel about it, which I like. Uh, the people are unique. That's how I usually describe it. It's quirky. It's got a dynamic downtown area, and it's the intersection of lots of different cultures. Olympia is home to retired workers from the old Olympia Brewery, soldiers and airmen from a military base 20 miles away. But it's also a college town. The Evergreen State College is known for its activism and protests. 
It's one reason there's an unusual number of anarchists in Olympia. They're known for breaking windows of local banks on or around International Workers' Day each May. And since this is the state capital, there are thousands of government employees, buttoned-up types, who truly believe in the power of people like themselves to solve problems. Olympia is unique in that we are well-educated, we're engaged. Nathaniel Jones is on Olympia's city council, and he worked for the state for many years. We have people who believe that uh, government actually has a role in making people's lives better. Olympia's city council declared a state of emergency around homelessness weeks before this spike in homelessness downtown got everyone's attention. Months before that, voters here agreed to raise their own taxes to build apartments for homeless people. No buildings have gone up yet. Many will take years to approve and complete. But Olympia has done more than a lot of cities its size to respond to homelessness. And the West Coast's homelessness crisis exploded here anyway. I talked to a bunch of people about why that is, people who have been on the front lines of fighting homelessness here for decades. I asked them the same question everyone's asking. What happened? They all start their stories around the same turning point. Starting in the early 80s, we began to have a more visible homeless problem. Anna Schlecht arrived in Olympia with a backpack and a guitar, looking to start over. Back in the Midwest, her high school class had voted her most likely to go to prison. In Olympia, she started working in the city's maintenance department, fixing doors at the library, cementing latrines in the jail. Working around the city, she remembers seeing homelessness change and grow. People would be camping in the woods, breaking into abandoned buildings to survive, or staying in one of the two shelters that we had. And homelessness suddenly appeared in a little tiny town called Olympia, Washington. And I remember thinking, this is just so bizarre. All around the country, cities saw homelessness grow more visible in the 80s, and people started talking about it as a crisis. Some researchers call this the beginning of our modern era of homelessness. The reasons for that are complicated and sometimes disputed, but here's what was going on back then. One of the worst economic recessions in modern history hit in the early 80s. The country saw its highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. You also had a more conservative mood sweeping the country. Under President Ronald Reagan, the federal government slashed programs for people in poverty, including help with housing. And in different ways, this was the tail end of an era when spaces for the country's poorest and most vulnerable people were already disappearing. 60 miles north of Olympia, Joe Martin watched this happen in his city, Seattle. He was a social worker in a strip of downtown called Skid Row. You know, every logging camp has a skid road. You skid the logs down the road to the mill. It just so happened that the community of drifters, itinerant workers, hobos, prostitutes, gamblers, and a whole amalgam of folks sprung up in that area of old Seattle. No one was skidding logs anymore by the time Joe was working on Skid Row in the late 70s, but a lot of that community was still there. Many rented rooms in rundown hotels. But in the late 70s, Joe watched the last remnants of Skid Row disappear. 
developers turned many of those hotels into nicer and more expensive apartments. It wasn't just Seattle. All around the country around this time, cities were gentrifying and losing their versions of Skid Row. Joe says many of those displaced Skid Rowders, as he calls them, became the first wave of Seattle's modern homeless population. Then came the second wave. The Skid Rowders started telling Joe about this new population on Seattle streets. People began noticing, the Skid Rowders began noticing that there was this new element. I'll always remember there was this one Skid Road guy who, in his own, you know, prosaic ways, asked me, he said, where are all these nuts coming from? See, they, 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 they saw this group as very different from them, and they were. States had been shutting down psychiatric hospitals, institutions where people with serious conditions like schizophrenia were sometimes neglected or abused. The plan was to break up those human warehouses and replace them with smaller, local treatment centers. But those replacements never really materialized. In some cases, patients were released from psychiatric hospitals directly onto the streets. This was called deinstitutionalization. A lot of people today see it as a botched attempt at reform. In Olympia, Anna saw its effects in the 80s. You would see people on the streets of Olympia that appeared to be local examples of national policy, of shutting down residential facilities that were draconian in how they treated inmates, basically. But they did provide housing of some sort. And it's one of those things of a balance. It's like, on one hand, personal liberty is very important, but personal safety and well-being is also important. In the 80s, Anna moved out of Olympia's maintenance department and into a job with the city's housing program. As she tells it, she knew construction, plus she was good with people. She ended up inspecting houses and making recommendations for renovating them for low-income families. But almost out of the corner of her eye, she could see this pressure building in her city. Before the 80s, homelessness seemed to ebb and flow with the economy. During recessions, it got worse, and as the economy improved, homelessness receded again. But from the 80s on, it just seemed to linger and grow. If you were paying attention, you realized that there would be people camping in parks or in woods or squatting in abandoned buildings where that had never happened before. If you weren't paying attention, you could have missed it, but it was a very slow change in the 80s. By the 90s, that started to pick up, and certainly by the 2000s, it really seemed to increase rather quickly. By Anna's recollection, Olympia had 10 or 20 unsheltered people in the early 80s. By 2000, it seemed like 10 times that. Anna and some others in Olympia decided to do something. We have to know who's homeless and why they're homeless. Let's do a census. Let's do a count. Let's ask people, what brought you to the street? What put you in the woods. The first official count happened in 2006. Volunteers fanned out into shelters and camps. On one night, they found more than 400 people homeless in and around Olympia. Most of them were in a shelter or some kind of temporary home, but about a quarter were unsheltered, living outside. It was a snapshot of homelessness on one night, one point in time. That's what this method is called, the point-in-time count. There are problems with this method. All these variables, like the weather or the number of volunteers, can affect the results. 
a lot of people believe it undercounts the homeless population. It seemed to me if we found 441 people that were homeless, there was at least, you know, half again as many, if not twice. But it was the best data they had, and they kept counting one night each year. The numbers spiked at the height of the Great Recession that began in 2008, which is what you'd expect. Then something weird happened. Instead of receding and staying down as the economy improved, homelessness started rising again around 2015. That's when Anna saw another force come into play. This wave of economic growth that's been sweeping across the West Coast had finally arrived in Olympia. 60 miles north of Olympia, Seattle's population swelled faster than any other big city in the country over the past decade part of a trend of people flocking to booming West Coast cities with lots of high-paying jobs. Amazon alone hired nearly 50,000 people, adding glistening new towers to Seattle's skyline. All that growth gave Seattle some of the country's fastest rising home prices and rents over the past decade. Seattle's housing market ranks as the second hottest in the country this year, according to Zillow. Neighborhoods in red you see are seeing about a 7% expected increase this year. Skyrocketing prices. They've been going up and up and up, even spiking mid last year. In this explosive market. And an even more competitive home buyers market keeps rents out of reach for many. For instance, this 200 square foot studio is $1,150 a month. So that, that really speaks to how much competition there is out there. Skyrocketing prices in Seattle forced a lot of people out to smaller cities nearby. That pushed out other people to yet other cities, making those more expensive, like a wave spreading out from Seattle, raising prices in its wake. Seattle home prices have definitely simmered down, but it is different in other cities like Everett and Tacoma. Tacoma was just named the hottest housing market in the country by Redfin, who attributed this surge to priced out Seattleites heading to cheaper pastures. We have seen a lot of Seattle buyers just kind of trickle down. As home prices go up, so do the rent. Scarcity is placing Tacoma fourth in the nation for fastest growing rents with a 10.6% increase year over year. And places that were once affordable three years ago are no more. That's how cities like Olympia got swept up in the growth. In Thurston County, where Olympia is, the average rent for an apartment swelled nearly 25% over the past five years to more than $1,200. When you walk around downtown, there's no question this wave of growth has reached this corner of the West Coast. It's hard to escape the noise of new apartments and townhomes going up. Many of them have this boxy, glassy, pseudo-futuristic look that's come to symbolize this era of growth in the West. If you look around, you'll see a lot of scaffolding. So it's a city that's changing, it's in flux. As a business owner, we like that. As a resident, I don't know, we'll see. In the past two years, we've had a, an average rent increase of $100 per unit, um, so that means Two years ago, in 2017, rent was $200 cheaper on average. Seattle, Tacoma, and Portland are all getting incredibly gentrified, and it is incredibly hard to live there. And so people sort of come here, and it, it's now getting hard to live here, too. The thing is, this is what cities always say they want. People moving in, educated people with jobs willing to pay higher rents. This is supposed to make cities better. And suddenly, everyone's talking about it like it's a problem. 
Anna tells me there's a guy who works for the state who can explain what's going on. There's a really smart guy at Commerce, a gentleman named, um, of course, I'm going to forget it. I always want to call him Ted. So I'm Ted Kelleher. I work for the Washington State Department of Commerce Managing Housing Assistance. Ted crunches a lot of numbers on homelessness and spends a lot of time traveling around the state explaining what's happening. I meet him just after he gave one of those talks. He's carrying around a printout of his 91-page PowerPoint presentation. Uh, you know, doing it in an audio format. The, the charts are really speak the story, but setting that aside, we'll just work without charts. So Here's what the charts show. In the past few years, as homelessness has been getting worse, almost everything else has been getting better. But what we saw More people are working, incomes are rising. In Thurston County, the median income shot up $6,000 in a single year between 2017 and 2018. More people are getting married and staying together. Fewer teenagers are getting pregnant. Domestic violence is going down. So it's just a laundry list of things we've looked at, really dug into, and tried to see what was the change. Now again, not that we can't make improvements in all of those areas that might have an impact on homelessness, but we haven't seen a deterioration in those measures that would point to, to the increase in homelessness. Not even the opioid epidemic explains it. Opioid addiction is a problem in Washington state, but the growth of the crisis has slowed here, and now we're doing better than a lot of the country. The trend line doesn't match the rise in homelessness. Yes, drug use is a factor in homelessness, a complicated one, as we'll hear later in this series. But the data show opioid addiction isn't driving the problem. Ted says there is one trend that explains it, rising rent. This is a tight correlation. So as rents come up, you can expect more and more people to be experiencing homelessness, all things being equal. He says it's that simple. When rent goes up, homelessness goes up. They track each other really closely. One analysis found that in Seattle, a 5% jump in the average rent would result in more than 250 new people becoming homeless. You can think of it as a game of musical chairs. In the past decade, hundreds of thousands of people have flocked to Washington state, many drawn by a vibrant economy and the promise of jobs. But there weren't even close to enough homes built for them. That deficit right now is more than 100,000 units of housing statewide. In this game of musical chairs, there's 100,000 chairs missing. And the people left without a chair are usually the poorest, the least able to compete in this new housing market. When there's a limited supply of units, the people with more money are going to bid up the rental price or the housing price so they can get that unit, and the people with fewer resources are not going to be able to get that unit. So they're either going to be in a doubled up situation or living outside or moving to another community, some combination. When there just isn't enough units, it leads to price inflation and other not desirable outcomes. Ted's basically saying, Homelessness isn't rising in spite of prosperity. It's happening because of prosperity. Here's one way this game of musical chairs plays out. Many cities have flop houses, run-down hotels and motels with seedy reputations where some of the poorest people live almost like the last vestiges of those old skid rows. But flop houses have all but disappeared in this new housing market, and that's taken a lot of chairs out of this game. 
The last flop house I visited, just before it closed down in 2018, was overrun by bedbugs. People who lived there were covered in red bites, scratching their arms as they talked. But you can get a room in a flop house for a few hundred bucks a month, a fraction of the average rent in most West Coast cities. They're one of the last places where a disability check still covers the rent. And there are no barriers to getting in, no background checks or security deposits. That's why, for decades, flop houses were this unofficial safety net in America, a last stop before homelessness, or a first stop on the way out of it. But developers have been buying them up, converting them into nicer apartments with higher rents. And the people who used to live in those flop houses, some of them now live in encampments. Anna, the builder turned housing worker, rose to the top of Olympia's housing program. She ended up running it and found the job kept shifting over the years. In the beginning, she helped place people in houses. Then she helped get them into apartments instead. Then she tried to get them into homeless shelters, focusing more and more on triage as time went on. It seemed that no matter what we did or how much we grew to accommodate people who were homeless, the more homeless people that we had. The day I talk with Anna at Olympia City Hall, she's getting ready to retire. And instead of shelters, she's now focusing on finding money for tent cities, like the mitigation site. Never occurred to me 40 years ago that we would be working on publicly funded camps, but here we are, and we can't build them fast enough. One winter day in early 2019, Anna leads the point in time count for the last time. Out of chaos, order. Sort of. This, and what else do we need? Her team finds exactly 800 people homeless in Olympia and surrounding communities. Half are unsheltered. 394 people living outside. The most ever counted. As always, Anna thinks it's an undercount, and the true number of unsheltered people is more like 800 to 1,000. This 40-year story, it's not unique to Olympia. It's bigger than any city. It's a West Coast story. You could sum it up like this. It used to be that if you were poor, disabled, even drug addicted or suffering from a severe mental illness, there were places for you to go. They might not be nice, they might even be terrible, but they were inside. And gradually, over the years, those places went away. While a lot of people in Olympia feel like homelessness swept over the city like a storm in a matter of weeks, to people like Anna, it feels very different. It feels like a crisis that's been slowly building for 40 years, one that might take us 40 more years to get out of. So that's part one, pressure building over time. In part two, it explodes. That's after the break. I'm Viana Davila, editor of the Seattle Times Project Homeless. Our team has done a lot of work covering homelessness in Seattle and King County, but we know there are more stories to tell across the state. So we decided to partner with the team at KNKX Public Radio and join them on the ground in Washington State Capitol to learn more about the homelessness crisis there. 
We wouldn't be able to do any of this if it weren't for our readers and listeners who support us. So here's what we're asking from you. First, rate Outsiders on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find it. You can also subscribe to the Seattle Times and sign up to make a monthly donation to KNKX. You can find links that'll help you do that in the episode description. We really appreciate it. We just heard about some of the forces behind decades of increasing homelessness in Olympia, but there's still a mystery here. The story we heard doesn't explain why there was this explosion over a matter of weeks in late 2018, with hundreds of people settling in encampments downtown at the same time. But there is someone who can help us understand. Hey, so I'm Scott Greenstone. I write for the Seattle Times about homelessness. And in that whole process, I've, I've gone around to different parts of the country. Scott says, while this pressure was building in Olympia, this parallel story was unfolding 500 miles away that eventually intersects with the one we're telling. You're saying something happened in Boise, Idaho yes. that resulted in this explosion in homelessness in downtown Olympia. Right. And not just Olympia, but all around the West Coast. I- I'm not going to say it resulted in the same thing. But basically, something that happened in Boise really had this ripple effect and kind of changed everything. So where does this story start for you? So I'm going to start it in an alley in Boise, Idaho. People hang out here. So this alley is, is, there's really nothing that's very extraordinary about it, except that it's between two of the only homeless shelters in Boise. So there's a lot of homeless folks around. Uh, When people can't get into these shelters and they're full, sometimes people will just kind of lay down in this alley and and sleep there. There's fences on one side, and then on the uh, other, there's sort of a brick, gosh, what do you call it? Very cheap brick. So I'm in this alley. I'm with a lawyer named Howie Belladoff, who used to come to this place a lot to work with clients. And I'm in this alley because I want him to tell me a story. I know you've told me this story, I think, now twice, but do you remind... Do you mind telling me one more time what he told you about what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I have told you. Let me set this up. There's a guy named Robert Martin. He's kind of an ordinary guy in a lot of ways. He's homeless. And he has a pretty ordinary name, right, Robert Martin? Could you physically describe Robert? <laughs> I think he's shorter than me. He may be 5'7", dark hair, just ordinary person, you know. I mean... Uh, You wouldn't know he was homeless from his appearance. Let's put it that way. So Robert's shy. He he doesn't like the limelight, and he he didn't want to talk to us for this show. But he came to this alley one night in 2006, and here's why. He was staying at this other shelter in town. It's the religious shelter, Boise Rescue Mission. It's kind of a stricter place. You can only stay there for 17 days unless you go into this religious program. And if you don't, you have to stay away for 30 days. That's what would happen to Robert. And on this one night in 2006, he was sort of wandering. He didn't want to get a ticket. A ticket for illegally sleeping outside. Yeah. And he got back to the um, Corpus Christi day shelter to get a shower and uh, something to eat and was waiting by the back gate until they opened it, probably 6 in the morning. He sat down because he'd been wandering all night, and he just fell asleep. And the next thing you know, an officer was kicking him to wake him up, and he told the officer, hey, I I, I just fell asleep here. I wasn't camping here. I was just waiting for 
corpus to open so I could go inside. And um, he got a disorderly conduct <laughs> citation. So Howie's never seen this before. He's kind of this fiery guy. He has a very strong opinion about what's right and what's wrong. It's why he's involved in Idaho Legal Aid, which is where he works. And he's just like, you know, sleeping his disorderly conduct now. So it turns out it kind of is. Scott says Boise is a particularly hard place to be unsheltered because of some strict rules there. One of them is a city ordinance. It's called the Camping Ordinance, and it makes it a misdemeanor to use, quote, any of the streets, sidewalks, parks, or public places as a camping place at any time. And then the second one, and this one's a little bit weirder, it's the Disorderly Conduct Ordinance, which means if you are occupying, lodging, or sleeping in any building, structure, or public place, that's disorderly conduct. Wait, so so it sounds like it's illegal to sleep in most outdoor spaces in the city of Boise. Basically every outdoor space in the city of Boise. Scott says that lawyer, Howie, saw this as the city of Boise punishing people for being homeless, and he decided to fight it. He actually found six other people who got tickets for camping and sleeping outside, all homeless folks in Boise. He gets some D.C. people from the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty involved. They get some fancy firm to do pro bono counsel, and they take the city to district court. And the fight begins, this fight that's going to last over a decade. It's going to pull in the federal government, a fight that's going to change everything for cities with homeless people on the West Coast. Uh, Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court. The district court erred in granting summary judgment to the city on plaintiff's important constitutional So let's fast forward about 10 years. It's 2017, and this case is being heard all the way over in Portland, Oregon, by the Ninth Circuit. What's the debate here? What are they arguing? To answer that question, let me ask you something. Can you recite off the top of your head the Eighth Amendment? (laughs) No Googling. (laughs) Oh, it's not certain seizure, is it? Uh, No. Okay. Is it... um, Close, though. Cruel and unusual punishment? Yes. Oh, okay. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. That's all it says. And, I mean, what do you think that means? Well, it means punishments aren't supposed to be unreasonably harsh, right? But what is what is unreasonably harsh? Well, I guess that's kind of up to the people deciding, the judges, right? Right. And so if I fine Robert Martin for sleeping out in an alley, I think a lot of people could argue that it's unreasonably harsh. But the Eighth Amendment doesn't define it. It doesn't say anything about whether or not that is cruel and unusual punishment. And obviously, since the Eighth Amendment was written, courts have refined and worked that down. And through years of court decisions, it it, it has come down to a distinction. And and this this is the distinction that matters here. Basically, you can punish somebody for their actions, but it's cruel to punish them for their condition. That's the legal line. And here's what that means. You can punish somebody, say, for drinking and driving, but you can't punish them for being an alcoholic. Huh. And and that's where the crux of this whole case lies, is basically, is homelessness an action or is it a condition? 
Is Robert Martin choosing to fall asleep in that alley? Or does the fact that he doesn't have a home make it so that homelessness is like this illness he's contracted? And is it cruel to punish him for an illness? So what does the city of Boise argue? Their argument, and I'm gonna really paraphrase here because I'm trying to keep this simple. A police officer needs to be able to say, move along. So, Will, you've you've been inside some of these big encampments in Olympia. Yeah. Would you think it'd be accurate to say that they don't necessarily feel safe? I mean, you hear about sexual assaults that happen in these encampments. You hear about fires. You hear about diseases spreading. So there are a lot of health and safety concerns. Absolutely. And so that's the city's argument. We have to be able to break these places up. They're dangerous. And and that argument alone might have held up in the Ninth Circuit if, if Boise hadn't been handing out so many citations. In the first three months of 2015, the police issued 175 citations for camping or disorderly conduct related to sleeping outside. Wow. So what did they decide? So the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, they side with Robert Martin and with the other plaintiffs. The judges of the Ninth Circuit decide it is cruel and unusual to punish people for sleeping outdoors when there's no other place for them to go. Their ruling says, quote, As long as there is no option of sleeping indoors, the government cannot criminalize indigent homeless people for sleeping outdoors on public property on the false premise that they had a choice in the matter. Those words reverberate across the Ninth Circuit's jurisdiction, the entire Western United States. Politicians are talking about it. They're yelling at each other about it. People are trying to figure out what it means from, you know, from, from Alaska to Hawaii to California to Arizona. And, of course, in Olympia. And I thought this was crazy. So the ruling comes down on September 4th, 2018, right? On September 5th, Olympia was going to do one of the biggest, maybe the biggest sweep in the city's history. And so at Olympia City Hall, the day before the sweep, the city attorney bursts in and says, let's pump the brakes. We got to go back to the drawing board on this one. And they all print out this 38-page decision that just came in from Portland and they start reading it and figuring out what it means. Different cities across the West Coast have had to do this and figure out what it means for them. But here's how Olympia interprets it. If you tell someone sleeping on the sidewalk, you can't sleep here, you have to have somewhere for them to go. Maybe that's a shelter or maybe that's just somewhere that's not the sidewalk. When word of the Boise decision comes down, Olympia's leaders don't just pause that September 5th sweep. They pause all sweeps, all enforcement of their own laws preventing people from sleeping in public. That dance between the police and the homeless population, tents popping up, police clearing them away, tents popping up again, it's over. The music stops. Colin DeForest is in charge of Olympia's response to homelessness. In episode one, he helped set up the city's sanctioned camp, the mitigation site, as he grappled with a spike in homelessness downtown. Trying to make sense of how we went from 30 tents in the first week of August to 314 by the end of November. Do you have any clue as to why that happened? 
you saw a lot of individuals that were hiding, right? Individuals out of the woods, individuals underneath bridges. Suddenly they felt the freedom and they were emboldened to come out and say, hey, I guess I can stay downtown right now, it's all right. It wasn't that hundreds of people suddenly became homeless. They were already here. Pressure had been building for years. And because a man got a ticket more than a decade ago for falling asleep in an alley 500 miles away, all that invisible pressure exploded into view. People who are homeless in Olympia say they quickly figured out by word of mouth that the police weren't sweeping them out of downtown anymore. They could camp within blocks of services like the food bank and warming center that they rely on to survive. Some people had been camping downtown overnight, then packing up in the morning and carrying everything they owned on their backs all day to avoid detection by police. And they realized they didn't have to do that anymore. They could settle in one place. People kind of just came out of the shadows, came out of the woodwork, and they were visible. For so long, the unwritten agreement was, if you're homeless, just hide. And as long as we don't have to see you and deal with you, then we're good to go. And I think that that, thank goodness that has changed, because even though it is really sometimes hard to see this, it's hard to look over here and see all of these tents, but it lets us understand as a community, as a society, hey, we have a real issue here, and we need to, these are humans. We need to come up with an answer. I keep thinking about what you were saying earlier, whether homelessness is a condition or if it's a behavior. That was one of the questions at the heart of this legal fight that started more than a decade ago in Boise. But it's the question that all these communities are still asking right now. Are we regulating people's behaviors or are we punishing people for the situation that they're in? Well, and I think it's a question that I'm sure you ask yourself all the time, that I ask myself all the time when I'm interviewing someone who's homeless. I, I try to get at, hey, sort of what happened? And sometimes they say, yeah, I got into drugs, or yeah, I got divorced from my wife and she kicked me out because I was drinking too much. But sometimes they say the rent got too expensive. And sometimes it's a combination of those things. You're trying to suss that out, but you're also like, trying to f figure out, it, it, can it be that cut and dry? Is it a behavior? Is it a choice? Is it a condition? Is it some other thing? That's next on episode three of Outsiders. We go back to the streets of Olympia and investigate the forces in people's lives that brought them there. Outsiders is a collaboration between KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times Project Homeless Team. This episode was reported and written by me, Will James, with Scott Greenstone. Our editors are Aaron Hennessy and Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Additional editing by Anna Sussman. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Project Homeless's Viana Davila and Sydney Brownstone, Matt Martinez, KNKX's Director of Content, and Adrian Flores, who designed our logo. Special thanks to Simone Alisea and Paula Whistle. I'm Will James. Thank you for listening.